Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, uh, everyone. Um, welcome uh, to the LSE in this beautiful um, uh, room. I, I was in here uh, for a conference once a few weeks ago, and I just noticed that just having only trees out the window is kind of amazing for central uh, Central London. Um, quite stunning. Um, uh, so this uh, event is one of the last events in the LSE Festival on how do we get to a post-COVID world, uh, which is very optimistic, assuming that, that we will get to a post-COVID world, um, uh, uh, which uh, started on Monday, uh, the 13th of June. Um, and it's just part of a whole uh, year of activities at the LSE that explore how social science can tackle global issues. I am Karen Smith. I'm a professor of international relations and currently the head of Department of International Relations. And I'm very pleased uh, to welcome three uh, eminent speakers, uh, experts on this particular uh, topic on the United Nations. So Dr. Martin Binder, Dr. Devika Hallwell, and Dr. Matthias Kamek-Arkebuji. Um, and I'll say a little word about them uh, in just a second. So this uh, is about the future of the United Nations. I don't believe that there is a um, question mark after that, but I suppose we could we could insert a question mark after the future of the United Nations if you wanted to. After that, so, um, uh, but it is on the future of the, the United Nations. Uh, so Dr. Martin Binder is an associate professor in politics and international relations at the University of Reading, and his current research focuses on the authority of international organizations. UN decision-making and rising powers. Dr. Devika Hobble is one of our own, uh, as we say. She's an associate professor in public international law at, at the LSE, and her current research includes an investigation of the UN Security Council's authority and decision-making. Uh, finally, we have Dr. Matthias Kermagarki-Buji, who is an associate professor of global politics in the Department of Government and in the Department of International Relations here at the LSE. And his research interests focus on the governance of global issues, especially in the area of health and labor rights, and on the possibility of democratizing global politics. So today we are exploring the future of the United Nations. Now in April 2022, um, Ukrainian uh, President Zelensky argued that the UN needs to be reformed so that it can guarantee peace. He was speaking after uh, Russia had vetoed a resolution uh, on uh, the Ukraine a conflict, which sort of uh, indicates, I think, in a nutshell, what part of the problem is uh, with the United Nations Security Council, which is the veto of the Permanent Five. So given that, then, so Zelensky wants reforms. We all listen to Zelensky, apparently, uh, now, or some people listen to Zelensky, rather. Um, so what we're going to kind of consider what reforms could revitalize the United Nations and what prospects are there of them actually being enacted. Uh, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag, is it already up there? Yeah, there it is. Uh, the hashtag uh, for today's event is, LSE, is hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, please do put your phones on silent so you don't disrupt the event. And the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast uh, subject to no technical difficulties arising. So the way we're going to run this is each of our speakers is going to speak for approximately five to seven uh, minutes. Um, uh, and then we're going to have a conversation on the future of the UN. I'll ask a few questions myself. I'll jump in immediately and ask a few questions myself. Uh, and then we'll open up, up to questions uh, from uh, the audience. And the event will end at 5 p.m. Uh, so we have a little under an hour. Um, so without further ado, I will hand over to Martin. Welcome. Thanks very much, uh, uh, Karen, and uh, thanks for the invitation, and of course, uh, of course, thanks to all of you for um, attending uh, this event. Now, as Karen has already pointed out, um, the uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine and also Russia's uh, veto in the UN Security Council that uh, blocks, of course, any meaningful council action in the war uh, in Ukraine has led to massive frustration with the UN. <clears throat> it has also revitalized the debate about UN reform. Um, and it even raises some questions about the UN's future uh, more generally. Now, while the focus on, on Russia 
and, uh, and the focus on the lack of Security Council action in uh, the war in Ukraine is understandable. Um, my argument that I would like to make here in my opening remarks uh, is that the UN's problem goes beyond Russia and, and also predates the war um, in uh, Ukraine. And, and this, uh, I would argue, has important implications for both uh, UN policy making and also prospects for UN reform. I, I would also argue that at the moment Russia is not entirely alone and it's also much, much less isolated um, than what's often sort of being portrayed in, uh, in the Western media or in some, Western, some of the Western media. To the, to the contrary, um, Russia has uh, powerful supporters, uh, Russia has teamed up with other uh, non-Western powers as a so-called so BRICS group. So these are, in addition to, uh, to Russia, these are Brazil, India, China, and South Africa. And you can see uh, the leaders here um, on, uh, on the photo. And this group has begun to challenge dominant Western powers, the US and its Western allies. And this block formation and the challenge has already begun in the early to mid uh, 2000s. So it's not entirely new, and that would be uh, the argument I'm trying to hope uh, make to, uh, to, to make in this, in this brief talk also highlighting some uh, implications for uh, UN reform. Now, what these countries have in common, what the BRICS have in common, is that they're unhappy about many aspects of the international order. Uh, they're unhappy about their perceived lack of influence in many international institutions. Uh, they are unhappy about Western uh, norms and principles, in particular intervention and regime change in the, in the name of human rights and the responsibility uh, to uh, protect. And they are also unhappy about strong international organizations that can intervene into the domestic affairs uh, of their member state, undermining state sovereignty. Now, um, now I need to click on the next slide. Thanks very much. Um, now, this dynamic, the formation of a block of dissatisfied non-Western powers, is also reflected in the voting behavior in the General Assembly, for example. Uh, and so here on the slide, we have used information about the voting behavior of all the member states over the past 10 years on all roll call votes in the General Assembly to estimate their, their ideal points or their preferences. So here on the slide, you can, so every dot represents a single specific UN member states um, based on their voting behavior. And what you can hopefully see there uh, is that both the bricks in green um, and the rising uh, and the G7, so the, the, the US and its Western allies in the G7 group, have begun to form or form blocks. But they're not only forming blocks; they're also part of opposing blocks. So because they disagree on almost all issues um, in international politics, at least when they vote in the general assembly. What you can also see on the slide, and this is also something that is quite new that we haven't seen in uh, in the analyses of previous decades, is a polarization in the UN membership. So there seem to be two camps and only very few um, states in, um, in the middle. Um, now, this polarization um, has, and diverging preferences in the UN membership affects UN work in important ways. Uh, when we look at resolutions, you can immediately see that during the Cold War, when there was a lot of preference divergence, there, was almost, there were very few resolutions, and many of them were contested. Now, this has changed dramatically after the end of the Cold War, with more harmonious relationships in world politics and in the Council. The number of resolutions has gone up dramatically. Obviously, members of the Security Council can now agree on, on way more issues than they could before, including many Chapter 7 resolutions, where the Security Council can adopt coercive or authorize coercive measures such as sanctions. We also can see that it seems to, the number of resolutions seems to be slightly going down uh, over the past um, few uh, years. We can see the same patterns for meetings. So again, during the Cold War, few meetings. Now, the council members meet almost on a daily basis. And this hasn't changed after uh, Ukraine, the, the invasion of uh, Russia, the uh, invasion of Ukraine at all. Um, so we can see, you know, despite all um, the accusations and the criticism in front of TV cameras and in the public, council members, including Russia, keep meeting in the council. Um, and I guess I would argue that this is a good good thing and a good sign. And, and by the way, the orange bars represent uh, Zoom calls in, in the council. So you can also see that even for council members, it is back to the office uh, uh, now after the end 
um, of the uh, pandemic. Nowadays, also reason to worry, and this is where my argument about the preference aversions comes in, in that the number of vetoes is going up uh, significantly uh, over the past years. And importantly, it's mostly joint vetoes by, uh, by Russia and China. Um, and um, so the UK and France haven't used the veto powers um, after, uh, after 1990 um, at all. Um, and even more uh, worrisome, I think, is this graph that shows new agenda items. So new security threats or conflicts arise, and then the Security Council puts it on, on the agenda. And you can see this, this has dropped dramatically over the past year. So there is disagreement, and therefore the council members cannot agree, uh, or find it difficult to agree, on putting new items, new conflicts, new security threats on um, the council's um, agenda. Now, what are the implications of these trends? So the block formation and the more general polarization in the international community for Security Council policymaking and also reform. So just a very few uh, points, and I, I keep it brief to conclude. Uh, I think we have reasons to believe that the UN Security Council remains the, the key forum for great power coordination. That is something that the P5, the permanent members, value. Um, and so I think the Security Council will maintain this function. Um, I also think that Things, issues that the council members have agreed on in the past, you know, they will manage the day-to-day -day business uh, also now, for example, if, especially if the stakes are low. So peacekeeping in Africa, for example. I think it's very unlikely that Chapter 7 measures uh, will be taken in the future uh, at, a, at a substantial level. So sanctions, anything like that, I think is unlikely. And what about Security Council uh, reform? So I think that the preference divergence and the divisions make it now even more complicated to agree on security council reform. After all, you know, you need a large majority in the General Assembly and widespread agreement um, for any security council reform, uh, for any UN reform, um, especially security council reform. And it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't look like it's, this is happening at the moment. Um, I also think that the security council, we will not observe a complete deadlock of the council or complete end of the reform process because at the end of the day, you know, the Security Council is actually also quite weak because it depends on the legitimacy and on the support of all UN member states. And if the member states stop believing in the Council's legitimacy, then the Council will also lose all value for its permanent members. So it's, it makes no sense for permanent members to use it to only, you know, advance their parochial interests. And then my final point is that in, in light of this and in this sense, Perhaps the tragedy in Ukraine has some positive impact in that we can observe that uh, the General Assembly has now stepped in and that member states, uh, your member states are, have begun to undermine the legitimacy of the veto right in particular because now uh, council members that use the veto right have to come, have to turn up in the General Assembly and have to explain and justify why they have blocked uh, security council action. And that's all. Great. Thank you very much. Next up will be Devika. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, so I want to try and lead on from Martin's talk. I'm going to sort of now narrow in, I suppose, on the Security Council uh, and in particular its reaction and response uh, to uh, Russia uh, and the Ukraine conflict. Um, so. I want to start, and I'm on home turf, but the tech, you'd think that would make it easier with the tech. I've not had to use one of these fancy clickers before. So I just thought we'd watch a, a brief video from the council. Um, this was the moment when uh, the Ukraine's ambassador to the UN was presenting to the council, urging the council that it is your responsibility now to act. And the response, uh, he got from the council, and in particular, I want you, want you to watch the interaction between the president of the Security Council uh, and uh, Ukraine's ambassador to the UN. I just turn off the whole system. <laughs> <laughs> that was <possible? laughs> Sorry, Nick. Sorry. Also it's too late, my dear colleagues, to speak about the escalation. Too late. It's fine if it's just the audio Sorry, as well. No problem. Um, this is the wonder as it's well. It's too late, my dear. Working two minutes ago. <laughs> to speak about de-escalation. Too late. 
the Russian president declared a war on the record. Should I play in a video of your president? Ambassador, shall I do that right now? Or you can confirm it. Do not interrupt me, please. Thank you. Then don't ask me questions when you are speaking. Proceed with your, proceed with your statement. Anyway, you declare the war. It is the responsibility of this body to stop the war. So I call on every one of you to do everything possible to stop the war. This isn't called a war. This is called a special military operation in the Donbass. Relinquish your duties as a chair. Call Putin, call Lavrov to stop aggression. And I welcome the decision of some members of this council to meet as soon as possible to consider the necessary decision that would condemn the aggression that you launch on my people. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. I wanted to say in conclusion that we aren't being aggressive against the Ukrainian people but against the junta that is in power in Kiev. There are no more speakers on the list. This meeting is adjourned. It's actually almost more powerful <laughs> to hear the voices. But what you probably gleaned was that the president of the Security Council was actually Russia's ambassador to the UN. So the jammer's face of the council and stark display there were actually the Ukrainian ambassador trying to plead with the council, had to go through the Russian ambassador who corrected, you know, it's a special military operation. So uh, that question mark that Karen raised, the future of the UN, it's no surprise that we've seen the usual obituaries occur uh, in uh, the press and commentary for the UN. Um, we've seen it in foreign policy, foreign affairs, these uh, rags, uh, you know, that basically declaring uh, again the end of, of the UN. Um, so the question is really, you know, does reform need to take a cold shower? This panel is on uh, UN reform. Um, after Iraq, some of you may remember, I'm looking at these young, I'm going to apply my eye cream just sitting here. Um, some of you may have been all of five years old, if not younger, in the Iraq War. Some of us remember, though, uh, immediately. Iraq <laughs> Iraq so in 2003, um, that following the Security Council's failure uh, to authorise the war against Iraq, the death knell for the UN was, was sounded. George W. Bush stood up and, and basically declared uh, that uh, the Security Council was nothing more than an ineffective, irrelevant debating chamber. Uh, and again, there were many victories for the UN. Uh, of course, some, where are we, 17 years down the track, um, uh, 19 years down the track, of course, the, the picture is very different. The UN's failure to authorise uh, that action looks very different. So we, again, we need to take a bit of a cold shower. There's a big sort of cancel culture, and I'm sexing up, of course, the, the notion trying to tap into um, a, a cancel culture mentality, but cancel culture against Russia, uh, that basically, you know, why should Russia be allowed to be the president of the Security Council, let alone have a seat in the Security Council chamber? Uh, there was all sorts of commentary on, you know, the veto that we've heard about that Martin discussed. Russia vetoed the resolution that the, the council sought to pass. Why should Russia have a veto in these circumstances? That should be cancelled. Uh, Russia should have to relinquish its seat. Russia should be expelled from the United Nations. Uh, and there are all these mechanisms, and again, as the lawyer on the panel, and therefore possibly the least relevant person, uh, but there are some legal provisions in place uh, that I'll very, very briefly walk through. Oh, once again, feeling like I'm turned off the system. Um, oh, there's my video. It's too late. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to point out that Article 27 of the UN does provide in the third paragraph uh, that decisions should be made by nine members, including the concurring votes of the permanent members. As always, lawyers make the exciting things sound, sound dull and boring and you lose them. That means the veto. Basically, Article 27.3 says the permanent members have a veto. Um, but it does provide that in decisions under Chapter 6, 
a party to a dispute shall abstain from voting. So is there a debate that actually Russia should not have been able to exercise its veto? It is clearly a party to the dispute here. Amazingly, not a single council member, uh, I'm going to do a brief footnote, Norway did mention it, but not a single council member pushed for Article 27.3 uh, to be invoked. It appears to have completely fallen away. There was a little skirmish where actually it used to be, uh, it was that the text of the relevant resolution in the Security Council was uh, a chapter uh, seven, uh, sorry, a chapter six uh, resolution uh, expressly. Uh, and therefore, Russia might have, China insisted that that was taken out. Uh, and so basically, it, it was a little more foggy as to whether Article 273 applied. In any event, clearly, there was no pushing for Russia uh, to abstain there. Can you do it? <laughs> You're so good at it. <laughs> so what I want to point out here, though, is that that's not the end of the road. And, and it's really so fascinating, Martin's sort of very... Uh, uh, granular and, and research that actually brings out some of these issues that us lawyers can just talk a bit more vaguely about. Um, but the council is not there uh, to stop all conflict. It's not a pacifist institution, the UN. And then actually, if we think about the role and look back historically at the role of the Security Council, it is there to stop world war. Uh, and so potentially, actually, the council is not the forum that should be addressing this conflict that involves great powers. To the, and, and, you know, we're back into that Cold War mentality. Uh, and just at the beginning of the Cold War, just after the UN was established, uh, in 1950, the council was deadlocked at that stage. And this Uniting for Peace resolution was passed, which actually gave power to refer, where the council is deadlocked, matters to the General Assembly. So the General Assembly then becomes the relevant forum. The Security Council is much more efficient because it only has 15 members that can, can make decisions more effectively. But it, it, there's a recognition that where a great power is involved, actually the council should not be the relevant body. And actually in this um, situation, in the Ukraine uh, conflict, uh, this has been activated. Very rarely has it been activated, but it's been activated. And actually, uh, the veto by Russia, you'll see there, the interesting thing, Martin talked about this tendency by China and Russia at the moment to, to joint veto. You see, it was the, the really unusual thing here was that China abstained instead of joining Russia's veto. Uh, but it's been shifted to the council. So we see that actually there was a general assembly, uh, uh, resolution as a result. There we see the deploring of Russia's aggression that couldn't happen in the council, the demand that we draw troops, an incredible number of votes in favour, 141 votes in favour, 38 abstentions, which is again where Martin's research is fascinating. If we look at the block uh, there, see if any of these BRICS nations apart, we'll note they are. A rogues gallery of, of, um, of um, rejections of the resolutions. Uh, uh, if I remember rightly, we had North Korea, uh, we had uh, Russia, we had Syria, uh, Eritrea, sorry, and Belarus. Um, and so um, we see that, that there is some capacity for the General uh, Assembly there to be the relevant forum. Uh, I, I do want to keep my comments here brief, but, but just as a snapshot then uh, of that dynamic then within the UN uh, and, and whether it means that the UN has broken or whether actually uh, we are just seeing a bit more fluidity uh, about the use of the different organs in the, in the UN. Leave it there. Next up okay. is, uh, sorry, next up is I was just trying to read little tiny um, uh, names of the countries. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Matthias, on yes. to um, uh, people. Okay. He's going to bring in people. Yes, so the uh, UN Charter starts with the word, we the peoples of the United Nations. So it doesn't start with the governments of the United Nations. So why is this distinction important? Because we should also be interested in what the people think about the future of the, of the UN. Okay? And by people, I mean ordinary citizens, public opinion, and so on. So it seems to matter, but you know, 
Uh, I should also say that my own discipline, Polina Science, international relations, have not put a lot of effort in understanding what people think about international organizations in general and the UN in particular. There was a conventional view that people, you know, ordinary citizens, you know, didn't care that much about foreign affairs generally, international organizations in particular. They had other priorities. Uh, you know, when they cared, they didn't spend a lot of time in getting information about it. Uh, and then even when they got information, their views were a little bit incoherent, not very, uh, you know, not very clear, essentially. Uh, I'm not sure whether this conventional view was ever right, but I think the past few years have definitely put a big, big, big question mark on, on that. We have many cases where there have been important kind of events being driven also by, by what citizens think. I mean, we are in the UK, you know, Brexit, the referendum. Uh, obviously, it's an important example, but you can also see uh, the United States, you know, the relationship with, uh, with NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, um, but also in, other, in the Eurozone, the reform of the Euro system, you know, governments trying to uh, present essentially solutions to that that would also resonate with, uh, with, public, uh, with public opinion. And I think the UN has recognized that because, you know, when it was talking about reforms 15 year, years ago, uh, the UN Secretary General did, uh, you know, uh, consult very widely, but among experts and governments. Uh, now in 2020, for the 75-year anniversary of the UN, actually created consultations. It uh, did a big poll of 50,000 people around the world about the future of the UN. It created, uh, you know, uh, forums in 82 countries where thousands of people were taking part and so on. So there was a sense that today, you know, the public matters essentially more than they used uh, to do. So what do we know about actually the ideas that people have about, you know, the UN they, they would like, you know, would they like to have the UN, you know, should it have a future or not? Well. We have some opinion polls that tell us that attitudes have not changed very much over the 25 years. So generally, public opinion tends to be quite favorable. Then you have dips, you have particular countries, you know, Russia went from, you know, having a more supportive public opinion since 2014, then it has become more skeptical, but generally speaking, we see quite some stability. The problem with this uh, analysis, though, is that uh, People are generally just asked about the UN as it is. You know, do you like it? Do you, do you think it does a good job? But not about how the UN as it could be. Okay? Are they happy about this UN? Would they like to be, uh, see a different uh, UN? So it doesn't really address the question of reforming the UN at all. So in order to uh, try to contribute to filling this gap with two co-authors, we basically went out and asked people. So we asked over 7,000 people in six countries. So three of those countries are, are permanent member countries, US, Russia, China, and three are not, which are India, Spain, and Argentina. And we did a, what is called a survey experiment. Uh, I cannot go into the details here, but it's a way essentially to understand what people like or dislike about a particular uh, set of options. And in particular, we gave them, in a sense, a choice over various dimensions of institutional reform. So whether they prefer the UN as it was on that dimension or uh, as it could be, essentially. Um, the, the results have been published, uh, or actually I'm going to be published in the next couple of, uh, of weeks uh, in the International Studies Quarterly. If you are interested, you know, look, it will be open access or you no know, paywall of any kind. Uh, but you can also look on my, on my website. My name is there, just Google me and you should be able to find the whole article. But I'm going to tell you the highlights of this, uh, uh, of this, uh, of this research. The first thing is that uh, Generally, the people around the world across the six countries that we polled like the UN to have authority. They want to keep the authority of the UN in peace and security and would like to extend the power of the UN to take decisions also to important economic and environmental matters. So the idea that ordinary people are just against international governance doesn't find any support in our, uh, in our research. Okay? They don't want to ditch the UN. Uh, the second point is they want those decisions that the UN takes to be actually enforced. 
Okay, so they are against a system where every country voluntarily decides whether they're doing what the UN asks them to do or not. They reject that, that option. Okay, so a key sort of a strong form of national sovereignty is not what uh, most people uh, want. Uh, people are not particularly happy about the current way of making decisions where only governments sit in the UN. Okay, they want uh, either ideally directly elected representatives to also be there in a second chamber alongside a government uh, appointed chamber, or if that's not possible, at least national members of national parliaments coming together and making decisions together with other national uh, parliamentarians. Uh, another highlight of the research is that actually, you know, perhaps to some extent surprising, but not so much for a reason I will tell you now, you know, people don't necessarily want the abolition of vetoes. Okay? They actually want to, uh, to keep vetoes for, the, uh, you know, for at least some of the countries that, uh, that at the moment uh, have. So, but you know, there's a lot of debate about polarization of public opinion. So we also looked at how people are potentially divided. Okay? So one expectation was, well, you know, you like or you don't like reform, depending on whether your country is likely to have more influence or at least keep the influence that it has. Uh, and we find support for that. So the P5, uh, people in P5 members don't like the abolition of, uh, of the veto. That's not very surprising, okay? So their country would lose from that. Interestingly, people in the three non-P5 are quite indifferent. So they're not opposed in a way. They don't want it, but they are not opposed. And maybe they are worried that if you take away the veto, the whole system would break down. So we don't know exactly what explains that result. But we also looked at uh, personal political ideology, uh, and we find some differences. So people that you know uh, are very much uh, giving a priority to the environment also want more UN authority on environmental and economic matters. But also people that you know are more cultural libertarianism, and we proxy that, for instance, with views on, uh, uh, on homosexuality, whether you know it's legitimate or not. Also, those people that have more cultural libertarian values are more favorable to authority of the UN than uh, traditionalists, okay? But on the other hand, we also find that there is a not a lot of polarization, okay? Considering the debate about the fact that, you know, you have this uh, uh, separation of, of political tribes, generally speaking, most people would like to have a UN that is both strong and also more democratic, I would say. So what are the implications of this? Should now, do I expect governments just to read our article and go there and rewrite the UN Charter? Of course not, but at least I think uh, our research is a small contribution to taking away an excuse for governments just to say, no, we don't want to you know, reform the UN simply because our citizens uh, don't, don't, do not accept that. So we don't find any evidence of this, uh, of this effect. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Right, so we have lots and lots to discuss. Um, that ended a, a bit on a positive note, I must say, with a sort of an agenda that could be uh, picked up by, uh, by government should they, uh, should they want to. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, one, when uh, there was a lot of division during the, during the Cold War and the UN didn't work, with some exceptions which I want to come to in a second. And then this incredible moment in the 1990s when the UN was where it was at. Right, the UN was mopping up all of the all of the um, uh, conflicts, unresolved conflicts from uh, the Cold War. Then there was overstretch in the Iraq War, the 2003 Iraq War, and since then we've all been talking about a crisis in the United Nations. But even in the darkest times in the UN, I just think this is sort of leading up to a question there. There, um, there have always been elements of the United Nations or people within the UN who have figured out how to make some things work. And I am thinking about the spectacular invention, for example, of peacekeeping, um, which was a total invention. Six of, they called it chapter six and a half, before the, between the chapter six that uh, Devika was talking about and chapter seven enforcement that Martin uh, was talking about. So there have been, so the UN, the, the system is also capable of coming up with incredible creative solutions. So I guess my question to you all, first of all, is are we at the end of that? Do we see the system, this UN system, or certain kinds of individuals within the UN system who come up with those kind of creative um, uh, solutions? And then the second is who. And 
the, the bodies that have been talked about now, just in the last uh, half an hour, have been the Security Council and the General Assembly. But of course, the UN is much wider uh, than that. Um, I mean, the World Health Organization, all sorts of funds, and UNICEF, and all sorts of other things, and the Secretariat, and the Secretary General. So my second question would be, um, uh, is there still a role for a powerful Secretary General? Could a Secretary General make a difference uh, in um, sort of bridging some of these particular uh, divisions, Mark, that you were uh, pointing to, coming through the, through the blocks? Third final question is the role of middle powers. Um, and during the Cold War, it was the middle powers that helped to try to, it, which were part of this sort of creative ferment to try to figure out how the UN could, in fact, come between, um, guarantee some sort of peace between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. So here are countries of classic middle powers, such as um, uh, uh, Sweden and Finland, uh, Canada to a certain extent. Um, Ireland, uh, in fact, built its foreign policy around being a middle power at the United Nations. So what role for the, you know, is it really so polarized? Are there future middle powers that might start to play that kind of a role in the UN? So some, some big questions, and if you guys maybe take uh, just a minute or two, or pick which one, which one you'd like to, like to address. You will go in the order that we, we started with, so much um, Okay, thanks, Kevin. Difficult questions. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, no, no, that's, that's absolutely fine. So the, the first point, one of your points was on, on peacekeeping operations. And, and, and I couldn't agree more that this was a really creative innovation and actually something that works surprisingly well. Um, so for example, there's a very recent article in the British Journal of Political Science that gives an overview of the research on peacekeeping operations. And despite the widespread belief that peacekeeping doesn't work, Somalia and Rwanda and all those kind of examples, on average, they work surprisingly well. Um, and there is now even a consensus in the literature and the research and peacekeeping operation that this makes a, a, a positive contribution in various ways, in ending conflicts, in prolonging duration of, of peace after, after civil war, um, etc. So there is also a success story, not just innovation, but also success story. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of creative, now creative innovation or innovations uh, today, I guess, as you have pointed out, I think the Secretary General is the natural first stop for that. Um, he has presented a, a report not so long ago that has received very little attention um, that makes some, I think, creative um, suggestions and proposals, and I'll come back to this in just in, in a minute. Um, but also the Secretary General has been criticized a lot for his, um, for his role in the Ukraine and the, the lack of leadership that he provided. So I think there are the two sides. In terms of the, the creative solutions, I think that there are two themes there. Uh, one is basically that the UN works together with regional organization, more often based on Chapter 8, uh, some, some outsourcing, and there seems to be also some success in cooperation between the UN and the African Union, uh, for example. And the other one is one that Devika has pointed out, use more, um, increased use of the General Assembly. Uh, so bringing back, so there's big debate about, you know, how the Security Council has basically taken all the competences that belong to the General Assembly, and that is also that is the place for global democracy in the General Assembly. Um, and um, but there, I'm a little bit less optimistic because because precisely of the, of the polarization that I think we we, we see uh, and there. And on the middle powers, I think I skipped that. And <laughs> if anyone wants to do that, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, with the creative solutions thing, again, it is interesting to track how much because the UN Charter is pretty thin. Again, the lawyer looking at the treaty, but, but there's not much really in it. And so, actually, this chapter six and a half, uh, you'll also be interested to know the Yugoslav Tribunal, of course, that doesn't appear in the charter, uh, was created by the Security Council, a whole court, uh, hundreds of people working for it, people actually prosecuted and imprisoned as a result of it. Sanctions uh, used to be, I mean, the council was basically an organ that dealt with states. Uh, the council has started in the 1990s targeting individuals, placing sanctions on individuals. And with 9-11, that led to uh, sanctions against individuals not based on their state of nationality, uh, but you know, hundreds of people placed on sanctions lists. There were big problems because the council wasn't acting uh, in the way a government might. They didn't give due process to people on sanctions lists. Uh, so, so it sort of does act sometimes outside the law. 
Um, but it got very hyperactive, uh, as Karen has indicated over that time. Um, it started legislating the Security Council, and this is where it's really interesting, these themes of democracy coming in, uh, that actually the, the UN was not at all intended to be democratic, still less the Security Council. Uh, but that leads me on to the answer to your, to your really second and third question. Um, that this question that in this helpful term that, that political scientists have of legitimacy, that as lawyers we're encouraged, that's not our word, our word's legality. But I'd say for those of you who are studying international law or interested in it, legitimacy is absolutely crucial. Law is only relevant to the extent it's persuasive um, in the international sphere. There are no enforcement mechanisms really. So legitimacy is really, really where it's at. Uh, you take legitimacy out of, of the legal equation, it's like taking Hamlet out of the play. Um, that, that really legitimacy uh, is so important. And so when we talk about the role of these middle powers, uh, the middle powers as a result are gaining a lot more traction. Um, you know, because the council I think previously could in a way, particularly during the Cold War, it was all about what Russia thought or what the US thought as to whether something was going to happen. Uh, more recently, the, uh, just this is a tiny uh, issue that I remember going to the pub um, with some friends and saying, did you know that the UK judge has just been voted off the International Court of Justice? And suddenly everyone appeared to have gone elsewhere. In the <laughs> uh, nobody quite realised how important this was. So throughout the history of the UN, all the permanent members have always had a judge on the International Court of Justice. It's not in the charter that that should be the case. Um, but it has something to do with the fact that council does elect, is, is the General Assembly and the council both elect judges, uh, so they can veto technically. But this UK judge, she actually was an LSE professor here, Christopher Greenwood, uh, got voted off. What a loser, you might think. He's a fantastic uh, scholar and lawyer and judge. It was all about very much politics. The Indian judge uh, got the seat instead. So the UK could have vetoed, but they realised legitimacy-wise, uh, they had lost the support. Uh, and so they let themselves lose this judge uh, on the ICJ. So, so just a little um, example, I suppose, of, of how these middle powers are becoming more and more important. Thanks, Matthias. Okay, uh, creative solutions. Now, a little bit, I'm a little bit worried about the uh, Twitter hashtag because I worry some of you might start tweeting, uh, Alessia Academic has gone mad, so uh, <laughs> you know, I'm stuck in a room with a, with a mad <laughs> academic. Uh, what could the creative solution be? I think it could be that the almost 200 states who are not permanent members of the Security Council say, we have we had enough of you guys, of you five, okay? Uh, you're generally not very helpful. Uh, you have a tendency to invade other countries, and I'm not only referring to, to Russia. You're not even particularly kind of giving a lot of resources to the organization. What works in the UN can also work without you, you know, you have uh, countries like Bangladesh, Nigeria, you know, they provide a lot of peacekeeping uh, forces for the peacekeeping that works. Countries like Germany, Japan, they pay, you know, so they finance the system uh, and they, you know, can say we can do without you. So we exit the organization, we create a new organization, you can keep the New York headquarters, we build some <laughs> one in Nairobi or, you know, uh, in New Delhi or somewhere kind of uh, elsewhere, Dhaka maybe. Uh, and then if you want to join, you're very welcome, <laughs> but you're not getting a veto here, okay? And see what, what happens, because at some point, you know, I think what is, is happening at the moment is that, you know, of the two UN, the one that is designed to minimize conflict between the great powers, the concert UN, so to speak, it's not working particularly well. We are seeing that. While the UN that deals with the conflicts that don't see direct involvement of the great powers from the P5, you know, it's working reasonably well. And often when the P5 intervene, they even spoil stuff, okay? So that would be for me the uh, creative solution. Is it going to happen? I don't know, maybe this session is going to be recorded. And, uh, you know, watch it in five years and then 
<laughs> okay, great. Thank you all. And um, so now we can open up to uh, questions from the audience. Uh, if I point you out, you uh, please say your name and make your question short. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Pum Thobat from Master of International Relations. So I have a question about the, uh, the reform of the UN. Uh, given that there is already a channel that circumvents many of the problems of the UN, uh, for example, Professor Devika talked about the Resolution 377, Uniting for Peace, which gives the General Assembly the power to actually do something, and it has a record of uh, imposing sanctions. So in that case, what is the point of the reform, given that the problem right now is actually the lack of political will to actually impose something against Russia. So prior to the reform, they lack political will. And after the reform, it's not as if there will suddenly be a political will of the international community to do something to Russia. OK, great. Thank you. I'm going to take at least three questions. So gather, gather some questions over here, just in front of you. Yeah, um, thank you very much, um, Ewan Grant. I'm a former um, UK government law enforcement intelligence analyst. Uh, I've worked for um, subsequently for a UN program in Ukraine that was not an exemplar of corporate governance. Very, very serious questions later for Germany uh, about tolerating the behavior of uh, a German member of staff. Um, my question is um, about the Secretariat, which was mentioned. What are the strong points and weaknesses of the Secretariat, and how, what do you think the strong points can be used to improve coordination with the, the other agencies of the UN that you referred to, WHO, um, UNICEF, and so on? and very quickly, have you have the members of the panel seen the film The Whistleblower with Rachel Weiss? Thank you. Thanks. Uh, one last question right here at the end. Hi, thank you very much. Um, my name is Hugo. I work at Imperial at the Centre of Financial Technology. Um, what role do you think the UN has in the policing of emerging technology and already existing technology? And do you think that this technology may actually change the kind of geopolitical dynamics around non-state actors and the power that they have in geopolitics? Thinking about kind of uh, corporations, but also the possible creation of virtual states and the metaverse and stuff like that. Um, one thing I'd, I'd like to point attention to is how Jeff Bezos met with Boris Johnson last year at the UN kind of assembly when everybody came to town. And I thought that was a very interesting point. Uh, but yeah, I'd like your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, again, kind of take a chance, if you'd like, um, to brief some comments on Joe Long, just to join the same way. Same way, yeah. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll have a go at the, at the, at the first question, which if I, if I understand it, if I understand it correctly, was what is the point of UN reform in the current situation uh, of the war in Ukraine when we have United for, for, for Peace uh, resolutions that could actually do the, do the job. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, a, very, uh, that's a very interesting uh, question, but I think there's two distinct elements here. So I think one is the debate about what can be done in the current war uh, in Ukraine and, and, and who actually in the UN actually can do it. Um, and the second is, I think, is about UN reform goes beyond specific uh, cases such as the U Ukraine and trying to, you know, to make the UN system and the Security Council work more um, effectively and also more legitimately um, in, uh, in the future. And my very brief answer to the, to, the first, to the first element was that, well, actually, I think the Security Council has worked exactly as intended um, in, this, in this case. And as Delica has pointed out, 
one of the main purposes of the Security Council is to prevent great power war. Let's see what whether this is actually happening, but it has it was successful um, in uh, in the future, and therefore the UN system had to come up with other uh, instruments and other measures, and it has actually. So there's a long list of things that have that have happened, you know, expulsing Russia from the UN Human Rights uh, uh, Council, um, the ICC, um, the, the resolutions of the General Assembly. So I think the UN has been quite active within the, its limits, what it can actually uh, do in um, in this in this case. And so you know, and, and, and the sec the second question about the, the point of the UN reform, I think that's also quite clear because it has a long, long history, um, and it goes back to the beginning of the 1990s, and progress is very, very limited. Uh, so it's going on and on, and I think the, the two main obstacles, uh, first is the, the veto right, and the other question is about sort of, you know, representation, and who is going to join um, uh, the, the council in terms of, uh, of permanent members. Um, and there, you know, it is not, 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 not entirely the fault of the permanent members that this is not happening, because but it is also the fault of the, non, the, 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 the wider UN membership because they cannot agree, actually, on, uh, on, those, uh, on those issues. And they come up with very different uh, proposals. And here the middle powers, again, they don't play a very helpful role because the United, United for Consensus Group, for example, is basically trying to prevent getting their powerful uh, regional peer um, a veto right. So it's you know, Pakistan and, and, uh, and Argentina and Italy uh, towards uh, Germany and, uh, and so on. So I leave it at that. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, there are three really good questions. I'm trying to think how I can actually, I'd really like to hear the middle question, your own views. Uh, it sounds like you've got a, uh, some, some definite views uh, in that respect and, and obviously expertise. Um, so, you know, this probably your question is the one that I'm most equipped to, to respond to. Um, uh, and this question of, of political will. I mean, you know, we tell the story about the United for Peace resolution and, and it's now being referred to the General Assembly, but I just Googled just in case this morning to find out whether the General Assembly had done anything more uh, since its latest resolution, which was now still, uh, you know, over a month ago. Um, and the General Assembly is a really clunky body to, to take any action. It's not the body that's going to be most responsible. One thing I was wondering about was whether the General Assembly would work to get some sanctions in place via the UN. Um, but as we know, the sanctions are very much unilateral, and by that I mean they don't have UN support. That uh, you know, there's been hundreds, if not thousands, of people sanctioned on lists, but it's it's by states and and the EU. Um, and so actually what we're seeing is a displacement of the UN uh, in certain respects uh, by uh, states individually, but also other regional organisations uh, and, and institutions. Uh, and so this is potentially problematic. On the other hand, I'd argue, and, and I come back to George W. Bush's critique of the United Nations as fading into history as an irrelevant, ineffective debating society, that was actually absolutely to the point. George W. Bush had it absolutely right. The UN is a debating society. It is a forum where every state of the world comes and has a seat uh, and can have their voice heard uh, uh, on equal terms, and that is incredibly valuable. And that's where coming back probably to a previous discussion. But even last year, Joe Biden in 2021 uh, convened a discussion to set up a, a, a summit of democracies. Um, and, you know, these alternatives to the UN. Um, I think, you know, there is no alternative to the UN. And again, coming back to expelling Russia, that should never happen. There has to always be a forum uh, where all states have a voice. So political will, you're absolutely right, uh, because there's very often the UN does not act far more often than it does uh, because there isn't the political will. Uh, and equally, we see that happening uh, at the moment. Um, so, haven't seen the whistleblower is all I can really answer uh, to you, uh, but it sounds like there's a reason we should see this. Ban um, Ki-moon ordered all senior staff to watch it. <laughs> if you view it, 
you will understand. Okay, well, there's tonight's entertainment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what it does raise, though, is the personalities of these secretaries general. And Ban Ki Moon uh, is a very different character uh, to other secretaries general. And 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 certainly, if we we look at that, it is it, it's the good officers uh, that the secretary general. So the person in that position is so important. Uh, and you know. Again, you can think through the Secretary General you know about or that you haven't even heard of uh, and, and see the impact they make. Um, and as for, of course, emerging technology over to you, but uh, I mean, it's so intensely relevant. The non-state actors bit is the only hook I'll, I'll take. And, and as, as we've talked about, individuals uh, you know, urging that they want to become more part but you know, corporate, corporations are as big as countries these days, and the corporate actors are far more wealthy uh, than countries and states, and and so their role, the UN's got to get more uh, non-state focused. Uh, there's so much more though, to your question. Matthias, last word to you. Well, actually, because I would be you know mostly repeating what Martin and David already said, I would suggest perhaps a, another, another round of, of questions yeah. if we can stay in the room for another. Two minutes. Okay. It'd be nice. I'm conscious that um, so far all the questions have come from one particular gender. Um, not to say one of your questions, but not to put pressure on what looks to be the majority of the room. But um, one question here, and then at the front. Yes, thank you. Hi, um, I'm Alejandro. I was here last year doing uh, the Masters in, in International Relations. I never got to meet you personally, Karen, so it's good to see you in person. I'm now doing my PhD up uh, in Oxford. Um, and I wanted... Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and I just wanted to pick up on something that Martin raised, uh, which is that there have been very few new items uh, introduced to the agenda of the Council in the last few years. And in my mind, this is very hard to conceive, very, very hard to to believe because the Council has simultaneously been expanding its understanding of what constitutes uh, a threat to international peace and security, going beyond violent, violent conflict to include, well, all these new threats for pandemics in the last few years, of course, um, but also organized crime, non-proliferation, terrorism, piracy, and especially uh, climate change. Um, could this failure to cope with all of these new threats jeopardize the Council uh, and the UN's ability more broadly to address threats to peace and security that we as an international community are facing in, in this century. Thank you. Thanks. Just in front of you. Hi, my name is Zainab. I work as a civil servant at the Government of Jersey, but I'm actually uh, an alumni. I was on the Global Politics Program, um, graduated in 2019. Um, my question is related to, so obviously we've talked a lot about institutional reform, but to what extent um, do you think that the UN needs to work on managing expectations about what it can actually uh, achieve in the long term to safeguard its legitimacy? Because obviously the role of its... Um, its ability to take action in conflict situation has come to the fore again with Russia and Ukraine, but there are a lot of unresolved um, long-standing conflicts which the UN has responsibilities for, so for example, Kashmir or Palestine. Um, and do you see that it, you know, in terms of this like managing expectations, um, one way it could do that is more presenting itself as a normative making body rather than an action taking body because obviously there are a lot of outstanding resolutions which, which have the solution but it, it's the implementation that that um, is suffering. So, yeah. Big chunks of, uh, of questions there. Shall we start Shall I go first? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, managing expectations, and this also relates to the previous question. You know, what could the UN Secretary, Secretary General do? I think this is the dilemma for for Secretary Generals: whether they want to present themselves as secretaries or generals. You know, and so they have been a little bit going back and forth between those two roles, and not being able to. Uh, do neither particularly well. And I think this is the problem of uh, a situation like the one in the UN, where when the great powers really have a stake in the decision, what the UN has been, or the UN Security Council has been able to do, 
is to offer them a way to save face. So they say, well, okay, you're not getting exactly what you want, so, but you're still a, a member of the UN Security Council. So you have still, your, you have a great power, and ultimately, essentially, we can present this solution as something that you have been agreeing to. So I'm giving you one example from the past, which was the kind of, uh, uh, essentially, the question of Kosovo, the Kosovo war in the late 1990s. So Russia was protecting Serbia, saying, don't touch Serbia. And NATO came in and basically bombed Serbia. That was a really difficult moment for, uh, for Russia, because essentially it was investing political capital into protecting an ally, and the West basically ignored that. The UN Security Council was useful in that context because as soon as it happened, then the discussion was brought back into the UN Security Council and Russia was given the opportunity to somehow get involved and showing we are still important here, okay? We, we, we are participating in decisions. We are not completely being ignored. But how do you deal with this logic, which is probably the main contribution of the UN Security Council to, in a way, managing great power conflict in a situation like the invasion of Ukraine? Okay, so this is the dilemma. Do you want to use the Security Council to give an opportunity to Russia to save face? But if you do that, what are you sacrificing? So we are talking here about you know, genocide. This is now what is being talked about, you know, with uh, a war crime investigation and everything. So you see there is essentially building into the you know, function, great power management function of the Security Council, a contradiction and I don't see how that contradiction can really be solved, except with the solution I mentioned earlier, where everybody gets out and then, you know, says that's a, that's a new UN. Thanks. Okay, so, um, I mean, very briefly, it's a really good point you make about new threats and the need to respond to them. And it's another creative moment we see that, of course, by necessity, uh, the Security Council has uh, gone beyond its initial, the reason it was created to maintain international peace and security by having to expand that mandate by defining that as including environmental concerns, refugee flows, human rights, which didn't even exist at the time in, in written form that the UN was created. Um, so it has to remain responsive. Now, that ties in with your great question. I love it about managing expectations because it's really made me think about who is the UN? When you started speaking, it made me think about this, the International Criminal Court at the moment, the branding and, it, and its need to manage expectations of its public um, is, is really key to its continuing survival. But the UN actually, and, and again, coming back to the Secretary General and, and the Secretariat, actually, you know, I suppose if anything, you could see the Secretary General as embodying the institution, but he, or one day she, um, <laughs> is in this unenviable position where they're basically, and I love that comment about are they secretaries or generals, because absolutely, you know, are they the agent of states? Just the sec, you know, they can't really go far beyond the political will uh, because otherwise they lose the capacity to persuade that good officers. They can't be the general. They can't drive the agenda. Uh, they can encourage one way or the other. So. You know, the UN again, and perhaps the branding is really important, just making sure that uh, the we the peoples are aware that, that, that the UN, the, the Marx Brothers expression, is only as good as its members. That if the members don't want to act, the UN as a body cannot uh, move itself in one direction or another. Thanks. Yes, uh, uh, thank you. So. On, on, on your question about agenda uh, setting and very few items maybe on the agenda, I, I also was surprised when I when I saw that, which was also the reason that I put it this slide on, into into my presentation. But the UN has got, has become much better uh, in providing data and information. So if you can if you go to um, the, uh, the the repertoire the repertoire of the UN Security Council, you can't just only find the, the, the graph, but also for each item agenda you can find a list what exactly it is that the council has or has not put on the, uh, on the agenda. Um, and yes, there is a debate whether actually sort of, you know, because the council in the end can determine 
whatever it wants to be a security threat. And so there has been an expansion about, you know, global health. Some have, you know, made accusations against the security company in terms of being missing in action in the COVID crisis, and there's climate change, um, civilian protection of civilians in conflict, and so on and so, on and so forth. And some members have been concerned about the broadening um, of the Council's uh, uh, mandate. And then I have actually looked at those uh, expectations, and it brings me to the second question that UN members have towards the Council. And usually what we would expect, what we think, is that you know members, including also individuals, want to perform organizations well, do their job, being effective. In the UN, surprisingly, that's not the case. When we look empirically at what member states want, they want more democracy. They want fair participation. They want accountability. They want transparency. Um, and the Security Council has delivered in some ways. There are more open debates. There are area formula meetings. So there's more sort of more channels for you know also the civil society to uh, feed into uh, the Security Council um, uh, decision making. So in a way, as you know, as a response to your question, yes, the UN should manage expectations and explain better what it can and cannot do. Um, but then on the other side, I also think we should have high expectations. And, uh, you know, we want the UN to, to be successful and to deliver and to address uh, security threats. Um, and, uh, and so, as, as Matthias has pointed out, this is obviously very difficult uh, to, uh, to reconcile. And I think at the moment, the Secretary General should be a little bit more of a general and less of the uh, of, of, a, of a secretary. Um, and I need it. Memo taken. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank you very much to our panel for a delightful discussion. Thank you all for attending. And if you'll uh, join me in thanking uh, the panel for their um, good views. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.